Sal Chao. That's hello and welcome in Dalek. And welcome indeed to City Breaks Edinburgh, Episode 7, The Scottish Parliaments. I'm Marion Jones. And yes, the parliaments in the title are plural, because the history of democracy in Scotland and who rules Scotland is a complex one. We've all heard today about Holyrood, seen it on the news, the Edinburgh-based Scottish Parliament, but history goes much further back than that. At various times in the past, the rulers of Scotland have met at Edinburgh Castle, they've met at Holyrood Abbey, and they've met at the old toll booth. And that's before we even get to the two parliaments which I'm going to treat particularly in this episode, they being Parliament House, a building just up behind St Giles, the cathedral, which was built in the 1630s, and which was, until the Act of Union in 1707, the Scottish Parliament. And then, of course, the other building, Holyrood, the new Scottish Parliament, opened nearly 300 years after the first one was closed down in 2004. So, this episode then, a little bit of the chequered history of who rules Scotland, and a visit to those two buildings, which are still there for you to see today. Starting with the history, I think you could summarise the whole thing as a long, long period of toing and froing with England. Scottish history and English history being very much intertwined. The Romans, for example, were in both. They may have come to England in AD 43, but 40 years later, they were in Scotland too, although it is said that they never fully overcame the Picts' resistance. They may have been there for about 200 years, but they were eventually pushed back to the other side of Hadrian's Wall. And it was the Picts who first established a fortress on the site which we now know as Edinburgh Castle, so very much taking control of their own city. King Arthur too is linked to Scotland, although that's mainly legend, so the details are a little hazy, but it is thought that the naming of Arthur's seat comes from the fact that one of his battles was fought on that site. The North Germans who arrived in the 7th century arrived at Northumbria, so they went to Scotland as well as to England. But by the 10th century, a fight back was beginning, Scottish kings were appearing, three Malcolms, one of whom I mentioned, Malcolm III, who was married to Queen Margaret. She was English, of course. She'd fled to Scotland from England. Then there was King David, the one who built Holyrood Abbey and possibly St Margaret's Chapel, which was named in memory of his mother although I think it remains uncertain which of them started the project off. There's William the Lion, who reigned from 1165 to 1214, and his was the symbol of a red lion, which is still there today on the Royal Standard of Scotland. And then finally, when it comes to the story of parliaments, what became known as the first Scottish Parliament was set up by King Alexander II in round about 1215. That being, of course, the same year as Magna Carta in England, so democracy beginning to take hold in both countries simultaneously. The Scottish Parliament wasn't what we think of today as a Parliament. It wasn't permanent. It was just a collection of people gathered by the monarch when he wanted to discuss specific issues. How to finance another war against England, that sort of thing. It was a mix of religious authorities and the nobility, perhaps some borough commissioners thrown in too, and, as Christopher McNabb writes in his History of Edinburgh, quote, so began a long road of Scottish governance from Edinburgh. The danger of getting lost in the detail is ever-present, but a few summary sentences about the situation at the end of the 13th and beginning of the 14th century 
will perhaps serve as an example of the sort of thing that went on, the toing and froing, as I've already described it, between England and Scotland. So the king in 1292 was one John Balliol, who was treated as an inferior by Edward I, the English king. Obviously, he resented this, so he signed a pact with France. Eventually, it became known as the Old Alliance. Of course, Edward had to retaliate, so he promptly invaded Scotland, captured Edinburgh Castle, installed more than a thousand English troops there, stole the Stone of Destiny, that symbol of Scotland on which so many Scottish kings had been crowned. Edward promptly took it back down to Westminster, where for the next 700 years it would be used for coronations. But in 1313, the Scots recaptured the castle. The following year, they defeated the English at Bannockburn and the English began their retreat. All of this ending in 1328 with the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton, in which the English renounced all claims to political power in Scotland and Robert the Bruce became the undisputed king of Scotland. I very much enjoyed Christopher McNabb's portrayal of the old alliance in which he explains that the thing about Scotland and France was they had a common problem, and that was England. So they joined together to make things much more difficult for the English. Here's how he describes it. In a useful reciprocal arrangement, Scotland would launch an attack over the Tweed into northern England if France were attacked, while France would launch assaults against the English Channel ports if Scotland were threatened. The arrangement bore real military fruit, Scotland supplied France with thousands of mercenaries who helped secure important victories over the English on French battlefields and won for Scottish nobles titles to French lands. English forces struggled to divert troops northwards to a rebellious Scotland and fighting against France. The story rumbles on. In the 16th century, for example, came the rough wooing, more English brutality against the Scots. The cause? The fact that Henry VIII decided he would solve the whole problem by agreeing for his son Edward to marry the newborn Mary Queen of Scots when she grew up. The Scots firmly rejected this idea and Henry's reaction was swift and brutal. More English troops sent north with the following instructions. Put all to fire and sword. Steal everything you can from Edinburgh, then burn it and knock it down. This will always remind the Scots of their punishment for being disloyal. Do what you can to knock down the castle and burn the palace of Holyrood House. Ruin as many villages around Edinburgh as you can. Destroy Leith. All of this, I'm afraid, was done, but Henry didn't get his way because Mary was spirited away to France, where, some fifteen years later, she married the Dauphin, the son of the King of France, who would in his turn also be king. Well, best laid plans and all that, as I think Robbie Burns said, it did not work out quite like that. The Dauphin died and Mary returned to her native Scotland, causing huge unrest, religious unrest from those who didn't want a Catholic queen, political unrest from those who supported the English queen, Elizabeth, and feared that Mary would usurp her. Mary was eventually imprisoned and executed some 19 years later, And it was one Samuel Johnson, no less, who later said he really felt the Scots should have defended her more vigorously. You, he accused, let your queen remain twenty years in captivity and then be put to death without even a pretense of justice, without your ever attempting to rescue her. And such a queen, too, 
as every man of gallantry would have sacrificed his life for. But it wasn't to be. However, when Queen Elizabeth died in 1603, leaving no direct heir, it was Mary's son James, ruling as James VI in Scotland, who inherited the English crown too, thus uniting the two countries under one monarch. James left pretty immediately for London, promising to return frequently, but in fact leaving it some 14 years until he actually reappeared in Edinburgh. And he seems to have seen the whole thing as some sort of promotion. He used to say, apparently, that he could rule Scotland with the stroke of a pen, i.e. no need to actually visit too often. Later in the 17th century, King Charles I decided that a Parliament House should be built in Scotland. In Edinburgh, in fact. And that's the building you can still see today, just behind St Giles. A majestic oak-beamed hall inside. A Parliament which was conducted with lots of pomp and ceremony and really saw the return of Scottish pride. Described, for example, by one James Broom in 1669, after he witnessed the riding and procession from Holyrood to Parliament House of a whole host of people whom he described as the flower of the nobility. Just listen to this and see if you can imagine it happening on what we today call the Royal Mile. Indeed, it was a very glorious sight, for they were all richly accoutred and as nobly attended with a splendid retinue. The heralds of arms and other officers that went before were wonderful, gay and finely habited, and the servants that attended were clad in the richest liveries. Their coaches drawn with six horses, as they went rattling along, did dazzle our eyes with the splendour of their furniture, and all the nobles appeared in the greatest pomp and gallantry. The regalia, which are the sword of state, the sceptre and the crown, were carried by three of the ancientest of the nobility and on each side the honours were three mace-bearers, bareheaded, a nobleman bareheaded with a purse, and in it the Lord High Commissioner's commission, then last of all the Lord High Commissioner, with the dukes and marquises on his right and left hand. So Edinburgh had Charles II to thank for all of that, but, of course, Charles himself was doomed, being executed in 1649. After ten years or so of Oliver Cromwell, Charles's son, Charles II, was restored to the throne. He was a Stuart, of course, and this was welcomed by a good number of the people of Edinburgh. A contemporary description tells us that, on this day, bells rang, cannons boomed, drums beat and trumpets blew, while people danced in the high street and a bonfire burned atop Arthur's seat. That was in May 1660, and on the 19th of June, a few weeks later, a day of thanksgiving was held, at which everyone toasted the king in wine running from spouts at the Mercat Cross. And that evening there was a glorious fireworks display on Castle Hill, at which, it is said, there was a depiction of Cromwell being chased away by the devil. So, by and large, the return of the Stuarts to the English and Scottish thrones was welcomed by many of the people in Edinburgh. However, when the Catholic Stuart line was replaced in the 1680s by William of Orange, very Protestant, and his wife Mary, that was the beginning of unrest which led later on to the Jacobite rebellions. In 1707, the Act of Union, the point from which the two countries of England and Scotland no longer shared just a monarch, but also government and parliament. The parliament in Parliament House in Edinburgh was dissolved, because from now on the country would be ruled from Westminster. Some people quite welcomed this. It's said that the bells of St Giles played the tune 
Why should I be sad on my wedding day in celebration and that a gunfire salute was fired from the castle? However, there certainly was opposition too. Every June the 10th, for example, that being the birthday of James II's son, i.e. the would-have-been Stuart King that many people felt should have inherited the crown from his father, toasts were drunk to the restoration of the Stuart line. In 1713 there was even a symbolic coronation of James and a mock burning of the House of Hanover. And unrest increased in 1714 when Queen Anne died, she too had no surviving children, and a search was made for her successor who in the end turned out to be the German Prince George from Hanover. And what really enraged people was the fact that he was only 50-something in line to the throne. All those preceding him were Catholic and deemed not acceptable. So, unsurprisingly, the idea of rebelling against this took hold. The first Jacobite rebellion, named after James, whom they thought was the legitimate king, took place in 1715. The 8,000 Jacobites were defeated. But 30 years later came another Jacobite rebellion, 1745, the one in which Bonnie Prince Charlie, the grandson of James II, so he'd moved on a generation, returned to Scotland from Europe where he'd been brought up and attempted to establish himself as King of Scotland. Michael Fry, in his book Edinburgh, A History of the City, tells us that, quote, jubilation greeted the entry of Prince Charles. In Highland dress, he stood in the King's Park to show himself to the people, then mounted a horse to ride to Holyrood. It turned into a triumphal procession, cheered by a huge crowd pressing close to touch him. He explains that Prince Charles settled back into Holyrood Palace and began to behave as if he were the ruler of Scotland, appointing governors, ordering that taxes should be collected, and generally settling down into the role of monarch. Quote, most of his days followed a set pattern. At nine o'clock in the morning, he would convene his council of Jacobite noblemen, Highland chiefs and aides brought from France. Business done, they lunched in public to the sound of bagpipes. Lifeguards then escorted the prince to his army's encampment on the far side of Arthur's seat. He inspected it before returning to Holyrood to receive ladies in his drawing room. Supper was taken in public too, again to music and in the evening, a ball would follow. Bonnie Prince Charlie loved dancing, but he knew too that this was an interlude and that if he really were going to establish himself, there was a lot more fighting to be done. He put it like this. I like dancing, and am very glad to see the ladies and you divert yourselves, but I have now another heir to dance, and until that be finished, I'll dance no other. He set off then to invade England, but was eventually pushed back into Scotland defeated at the Battle of Culloden, and fled to France. So, joint rule it was for the rest of the 18th century, under the Georgians. George III, for example, reigned for 60 years, and every year his birthday was a public holiday in Edinburgh. A day off for everyone, fireworks, and, for the nobility, a grand feast in the evening, at which some 1,500 people would gather at Parliament House to toast the king. Right at the end of the Georgian era, royalty got another big boost, in the shape of a visit from George IV to Edinburgh, the first monarch to visit the city for well over a century. Two weeks of pageantry and events were organised by the author, Sir Walter Scott, and there was huge excitement. The Polish diarist describes it thus. The streets through which he passed were not wide enough. 
there were not enough roofs or windows to give room to all those anxious to be present. For many the highlight was the fact that George, that very English king who was visiting his Scottish capital, wore highland dress, a kilt and flesh-coloured stockings, although in fact he was much ridiculed because the kilt was a little bit short and I've seen the stockings described as pink tights. But this was the resurgence of tartan, which until then had been more something you would see in the Highlands. But for this event, the people of Edinburgh donned tartan too, some of it later described as inauthentic, and they wore heather in their hats. So the whole thing was a resurgence of pride in Scottish culture, even though some citizens were a little mocking about the sight of the rather overweight George IV wearing his kilt. One of these was Elizabeth Grant, who laughed about him to her friend Lady Salter, but Lady Salter begged to differ. Nay, she said, we should take it very kind of him, since his stay will be short, the more we see of him, the better. Queen Victoria reigned for most of the rest of the 19th century, and she loved Scotland, coming up by train to visit regularly, buying the castle at Balmoral for a country retreat, wearing tartan dresses on important occasions. And through the 20th century too, things rumbled along. England and Scotland had a joint monarch and a joint parliament in London. But in 1996, big changes began. That was the year that the Prime Minister, John Major, decided he would have the Stone of Schoon returned to Edinburgh. It was exactly 700 years since the stone had been taken to Westminster after its capture by Edward I, and now here it was, an emblem of Scottish identity, returning to its home. One year later, the new Prime Minister, Tony Blair, decided on a referendum in Scotland, at which the people voted to have their own independent parliament set up. The Scotland Act ensued, and in 1998, that was it. Scotland was going to have its own parliament, and it would meet in Edinburgh. Initially, it met in the Church of Scotland Assembly Halls, and the words uttered by Dr. Withy Ewing at its first sitting were as follows. I have the opportunity to make a short speech, and I want to begin with the words that I have always wanted either to say or to hear someone else say. The Scottish Parliament, which adjourned on the 25th of March, 1707, is hereby reconvened. And just a few years after that, in 2004, the new Parliament building was opened by the Queen. So is that the end of the story? Well, maybe not, because two more important referenda followed. In 2014, the referendum on Scottish independence, at which an amazing 84% of the population turned out to vote. The no side won by just a few percentage points, so leaving the status quo, no independence for Scotland, but because the margin was small, seeming not really to satisfy the question forever. And things were further complicated then by the 2016 referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union. The UK as a whole voted to leave, and so leave we did, but in Scotland they had voted to remain. And that too leads to more pressure for a second referendum on independence, by all those people who feel that what Scotland voted for, Scotland didn't get, and there isn't democracy. So it is not beyond possible that one day Edinburgh might become the capital of an independent Scotland. On the other hand, it may well not. Who knows? Watch this space. So, two places you can visit in Edinburgh today connected to this story are Parliament House 
and the new Scottish Parliament. Parliament Square opens up behind St Giles's Cathedral and has in it Parliament House, the building commissioned by Charles I in the 17th century. I didn't manage to get inside on my visit to Edinburgh, but I was told by a guide that it's open and there's nothing to stop you popping in for a look. It is today the home of the Scottish Supreme Court and generally a centre for Edinburgh's lawyers. And if you do manage to get inside, you will find in the main hall the most fantastic roof of Danish oak, walls hung with portraits, and you will know that you are standing in the room where, for example, Deacon Brodie's trial was held, and other high-profile trials of people like the Marquis of Montrose. The new Scottish Parliament, however, is much easier to visit. In fact, it prides itself on being open to the public, somewhere where anyone can go and see democracy at work in Scotland. It's down at the foot end of the Royal Mile, so just opposite Holyrood Palace, and it is quite a building, designed by the Catalan architect Enrique Muralis and described by Duncan Smith in his book Only in Edinburgh as follows. From the outside, it comprises an organic complex of low-lying structures resembling rocky crags and upturned fishing boats representing the connection of the Scottish people with their natural surroundings. The architect himself said that he wanted it to be a building growing out of the land because, as he put it, we don't want to forget that the Scottish Parliament will be in Edinburgh but will belong to Scotland, to the Scottish land. The Parliament should be able to reflect the land which it represents. The building should originate from the sloping base of Arthur's seat and arrive into the city almost out of the rock. So yes, it's in a spectacular setting, opposite Holyrood Park and with splendid views of Salisbury Crags and Arthur's Seat. It is made of Scottish materials, steel and oak and granite. And right on the front it is labelled, of course, in both languages, the English, the Scottish Parliament and the Gaelic version. Just as unpronounceable as anything else I've tried in Gaelic, but which I believe might go something like this. Parlamich Nahalupa. On the side outside, there's the Canongate Wall, with 26 quotations impressed into it. A whole range of well-loved pieces of poetry, from the Proverbs and the Psalms to quotations by some of Scotland's leading authors. Many are in English, some are in Gaelic. One proverb, for example, is in both languages, Say little and say it well. There's a quotation from Alistair Gray, Work as if you live in the early days of a better nation. And, of course, there's some Robbie Burns. Some of his most famous lines, in fact, the ones which run, Oh, would some power the gifty give us, to see ourselves as others see us. It would, for many a blunder, free us, and foolish notion. Of the various areas inside, the debating chamber is the one that you are most likely to know, having seen it on the TV news, etc. Again, a modern space, finished in oak and sycamore and glass. Quite, quite different from the fusty, dusty insides of Westminster. And also a different layout, semicircular, promoting the idea of people sitting round to discuss. And again, quite different from the adversarial design of Westminster, which encourages the idea that the two sides should shout at each other. There are 131 seats in the chamber for the Scottish MPs, MSPs as they're known, members of the Scottish Parliament, and the Lord Advocate and Solicitor General. There's a glass box containing the very special ceremonial mace made of silver and gold with the following words embossed on it 
there shall be a Scottish Parliament, those being the opening words of the Scotland Act from 1998, which brought the Parliament into being. And then, as befitting a modern Parliament, there's a public gallery above, press seats, etc., space for television cameras, and a little room where the scribe sits, who is making a written record of everything which is said. There are links to history throughout the building, even though it's very modern in its atmosphere. There is, for example, in a room called the Garden Lobby, something called the Arniston Stones, which were part of the original Scottish Parliament, the one that was dissolved in 1707, and which have been brought here to be part of the decoration and form a symbolic link between the new Parliament and the history of the Scotland which it represents. You can do a virtual tour of the Parliament. I'll put the link in the show notes, and then you'll be taken past the offices for all the MSPs, modern and airy in design, and each one, I enjoy this fact, containing a little think pod, a place for MPs to sit and consider their decisions, especially before they're just about to go and vote. Queensbury House, an original 17th century listed building, has been kept and incorporated into the design. Another link with history. And the Scottish flavour very much kept in the garden too, where native Scottish plants and trees have been planted, and where the design is based on the original knot garden from the original Queensbury House. Openness is very much one tenet of the Parliament, so you can do a virtual tour any time you like, and in non-Covid times there are guided tours, I think every day of the week except Sunday, for anyone who wants to see the Parliament and see Scottish democracy at work. And another thing about the Parliament in general is the commitment to the Gaelic language, which is very much encouraged. You can write to your MP in Gaelic, and if you do, they will reply in Gaelic. They have Gaelic versions of their blog and Twitter accounts. There's dual language signage everywhere. They run bilingual education sessions for schools and provide resources on their website for people who would like to, quote, speak a little and write a little Gaelic. I won't attempt to pronounce all that in Gaelic, but perhaps I'll end the episode by reading one or two of the phrases which are given on the website, along with phonetic spelling to give you some chance of being able to pronounce them. So we've already had the word for Scottish Parliament. The word for Scottish Government goes something like this. Rialtas na halapa. And my absolute favourite, the way to say in Gaelic, a hundred thousand welcomes, which is a traditional Gaelic welcome. And sounds, I think, something like this. Kiet mea falcha. And there is one more thing I'd like to mention, which in fact forms a bridge between today's episode, just ending, and next time's episode. And that is something called Scotland's Democracy Trail, which is a walk, about two hours in length, around the sites of the city, both in the centre and around the edges, which are connected to the story of democracy in Scotland. There's also a book on same called Scotland's Democracy Trail by Stuart McCardy and Donald Smith. So a good thing to read or indeed a good walk to do if you are interested in finding out more about the story of democracy in Scotland. But it works too as a bridge to next week's episode because that's going to be called Parks, Walks and Gardens. An excuse to visit the lovely Princess Street Gardens and see some of the many, many things linked to the history of Scotland and Edinburgh, which are on display there. Also a chance to go over some walking ideas through the city and to investigate some of the glorious surroundings, Arthur's Seat and Carlton Hill, etc. So I hope that you'll be interested to join me for that. 
But for today, it just remains for me to sign off. Again, I'm going to attempt to do it in Gaelic by saying thank you and goodbye. Here goes. With apologies to all actual Gaelic speakers. Tapa leave, agus marshin leave. 